Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. So, this semester, we are diving into questions that God asks us. You guys are probably getting tired of seeing this graphic, but here we are. That is our topic. And we've talked about how we are often overflowing with questions for God, right? Where are you? What are you doing? Um, Why is this happening to me? And I think, though, as we paid attention to questions that God asks of people in Scripture and asks of us, we've begun to see that through these lines of questioning, God is actually drawing people to himself. And so we're going to continue in that series today. So when I was a kid, um, I remember coming across these religious pamphlets or tracts. I don't know if you guys have seen them before. Um, Here's a panel from one of them. (laughs) Um, And this is actually the one that I remember that scared me as a kid because um, there are these, this group of kids and they came upon a pond that said no swimming and they were like, oh, we can swim. It doesn't matter. So they just jumped in the pond and lo and behold, there was a reason for the sign. There were snakes in the pond and they all died (laughs) and ended up going to hell. So it was a pretty like fire and brimstone message, right? Um... And the end of the tracks, I like, I don't know if it had it on this one or it just kind of generally the end of these tracks always said something like, do you know where you're going to be when you die? Right. And I remember looking at this one and being like horrified as a child, um, but also having this thought of like, oh, do I know? Like, I think I do. I think I'm a Christian. Um, but am I doing everything that I can to like not go to hell? Um, and I think many, in many ways, many of us are kind of operating out of this fear of, of hell or fear of rejection mindset when it comes to God. Um, and we're asking, you know, what can I do to make sure that I'm not in this place when I, I'm in a better place when I die? And what does God really require of me? And this is exactly what the man in the story is essentially asking Jesus, right? He came to Jesus for some validation that what he was doing was enough, that he was going to be okay in the end, that his good deeds were going to add up to a ticket to heaven. And so as we look into it, I think we'll find a lot to relate to. This story takes place in the middle of Jesus's ministry on earth, just to kind of set the context. Um, He is, he has started doing ministry, he's gained a following, he's got people like his disciples that are believe in him, Um, A lot of people think that he's just a prophet or a good teacher, and some people are beginning to think, oh, maybe this is actually the Messiah, the Christ. Um, He's healed people. He's cast out demons, right? He's preached against hypocrites. He's even said that some people's sins are forgiven. So he's kind of upended everyone's understanding of who he should be. And people from all over are coming to him to hear what he has to say. People like this rich young man. So I think as we take a look at this passage we're going to see that Jesus' questions to the man, why do you call me good, um, can actually be directed at us. And we'll find that the question causes us to reflect. So his question invites us to look inward and examine our goodness, um, to look outward and behold God's perfection, and just to receive impossible grace. So we're going to look at that in, in the three, three points. So first of all, Jesus' question invites us to look inward and examine our own goodness. Many people, Christian or not, 
think of their lives as storing up good deeds, right, or credit for whatever lies beyond the grave. And in this view, God measures us by our good deeds minus our bad deeds. And as long as you stay in the black, you'll get into heaven. Um, this is actually an analogy I was reading about. Um, this one pastor, he's, he's got a huge, huge mega megachurch um, called Joel Osteen, and he's got a bunch of self-help books. And one of them, in one of them, he wrote about this type of morality. He said, each of us has a spiritual bank account. By the way we live, we are either storing up equity or storing up iniquity. Equity would be anything good. Our integrity, our determination, our godliness, that's storing up blessings. On the other hand, iniquity includes our bad habits, addictions, selfishness, and lack of discipline. Oof. So, I want to really use today to think about this idea of our morality being like a spiritual bank account. Um, to see whether the Bible agrees with this. Um, and I want us to, you know, see that this is how the man in the passage is approaching it. But I think we kind of do it the same way a lot of the time. So let's see how accurate is that. So who's this guy? Who is this man? What did he think of his own goodness? Um, about how he was measuring up to God, about how his, his accounts were measuring up. We don't really know too much about him. We don't even know his name. Um, other versions of the story call him a ruler, so he's probably got some degree of authority. And in verse 22, we see that he's got great possessions, right? So by all outwards accounts, he's, he's got it going on. And he also seems to know God's law, so that's another box checked. His life is great, yet he still wants something more. And cleverly, Jesus assumes the perspective of the man, right? When he's asking, why do you call me good? Jesus knows he is God, but this man clearly doesn't believe it. He's just flattering him by saying, good teacher, right? But then Jesus cuts to the heart of the issue. You're calling me good? What is goodness? If you truly believe what you say you do, then you would know only God is good. And in this subtle way, Jesus is asking this young man to look inside of himself. Why do you call me good? And this guy's original question about you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It reveals his heart. He believes that salvation comes from being morally blameless. His version of goodness is achievable, but his question doesn't really make sense. Like, what must you do to inherit eternal life? Like in reality, and especially in the time of Jesus, an inheritance never had anything to do with what you did, right? It was solely based on your relationship with this deceased, especially in Jesus' time, like your birthright was to get an inheritance. And so his assumption is, is that God's love for him will come when he's perfect, when he's measured up, that the inheritance is earned. But what about us? How do we see ourselves morally? Um, pull a person on the street on Con Ave, um, and you'll find that most people will say that they're generally a good person, right? Probably even better than the average other guy. I was actually looking up, there's a study in Scientific American that says most people in America report themselves to be morally superior to others. And it says decades of research confirm that we are all above average, at least in our own minds. While we generally cast ourselves in a positive light relative to our peers, Above all else, we believe that we are more just, more trustworthy, and more moral than others. <laughs> Yet, 
obviously, we can't all be better than other people, right? And though we rate ourselves higher morally, the American Psychological Association has found that like seven out of 10 of us have something called imposter syndrome in a lot of areas of our life where we think that we haven't really earned where we are, we, ha- we aren't good enough for it, and one day we're gonna be found out. And I know from personal experience that this actually at- extends to how we feel before God and morally as well. Um, this is where I found myself in middle high school. Um, I grew up going to church, understanding the Bible, um, and I, I did. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. But I really relate to this guy because I still felt like an imposter. Like, I still felt this, this fear that, like, my guilt was not taken care of, <laughs> that if other people found out that I was actually selfish, actually greedy, actually envious, they wouldn't want me to be in their church, and God wouldn't want me to be in his family. And I... I I, like I would agree with this guy that he you know he wants his validation and that that's what I wanted too, um, and I don't know if you guys can relate to that. But many of us are in the same place as this rich young ruler. We're asking questions like, what can I, what do I need to do to get God off my back? What can I do to have b- both complete happiness on earth and not be afraid that I'm going to hell? Or how can I tip the morality scales in my own favor? And just like this man, we need to examine our understanding of morality. So I thought of two ways that are very prevalent um, today about morality. So the one way we understand morality is this like prudish or fundamentalist legalism, kind of like those tracks I picked up as a kid. Or, or maybe our version of this is more subtle, like God is pleased with you when you X, Y, and Z, when you read your Bible every night, when you go to RUF, when you're patient with your family. Um, But otherwise, you know, you're just a disappointment or worse. We think of morality as the attempt to be absolutely perfect, but that perfection changes depending on who we're talking to. And then another way that I think we often think of morality, especially in America and in Boston, is this just be a decent human being idea, right? Like, just be nice. (laughs) Um, to those people who are nice to you, pass on the good vibes, their kindness like confetti, that type of thing. And as long as you're not hurting anyone else, you're being moral. And lately there's a sense that like to be morally justified, you need to be righteously angry at someone else, whether it's the people across the political aisle, um, people that you perceive as ignorant, the patriarchy, your parents, whoever. Um, And in this view... To be moral is to be respectful to people who you agree with and to be angry with people who you don't. (laughs) And both of these, in the end, have this underpinning of good versus bad, right? The spiritual bank account is filling up one way or the other. But both of these lead actually to hurt and hypocrisy when we realize that we can't even live up to our own standards. So Jesus questioned to the man, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone, right? That's what he says. Turns the tables, and it causes the man to re-examine his life. Then Jesus lists off some commandments. Like, you know the commandments, and he lists off a few of them. Um, But you'll notice that Jesus didn't actually list all of them. So these are the Ten Commandments that God gave his people, Israel, way back in the Old Testament. And this is what they lived by. 
Jesus only listed out five through nine. You can see that. And by leaving out commandments one through four and ten, he left out the ones that have to do very obviously with your heart. <laughs> um, and he, and by asking the man to leave all that he has and follow him, Jesus is putting the pressure right where it's most painful for this guy. Like he knows him so well already. <laughs> and um, by giving him this choice, he's gracefully and painfully showing him what he truly worships. It's not God. It's not but comfort and success and prosperity. He's breaking the second commandment by, you know, choosing to um, keep his possessions instead of follow Jesus. And this is what we often refer to as an idol, or as Tim Keller calls it, a counterfeit god. Counterfeit gods are good things usually, right, in and of themselves, but the problem arises when we run to them for worth, affirmation, and our greatest good. Um, A quote from Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, um, which I really like, um, says, A counterfeit god is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. For the young man, this was his wealth and success, right? But for us, it can be anything, (laughs) any good thing sometimes, um, that we are tempted to look to for our ultimate worth. Could be graduating, getting a successful career, right? Could be having that good relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend, um, being needed by others, having money, you know, living comfortably, whatever. And our heart, as John Calvin has said, is an idle factory. Romans 1 says that in doing so, we make a bad trade. We exchange the beauty and glory of God for a lie, just an image, something that's made out of vapor and mist, and that in the end, when we make it our ultimate end, It can only fail us. So the man was fooling himself, right? He assumed that because he was outwardly looking to be following God, that he was actually worshiping him. But in fact, his religiosity was a mask for his true love, his true God, wealth, and success. So Jesus invites us to look inward, to discover that maybe what we thought was righteousness and goodness was actually just an idol in disguise. That in the end, maybe we're still counting on our good works to secure our way to God. Secondly, Jesus' question invites us to look outward and behold God's perfection. In reminding the man that God alone is good, Jesus is pointing us to look outside of ourselves instead of inward for a standard of perfection and morality. So going back to the spiritual bank account analogy, when we think like this, our version of God changes. And it's not necessarily the version of God we see in the Bible. We often think of him either as this disapproving uh, debt collector, right, who we have to please, or maybe this old man in the sky who gives out particular uh, participation trophies to everyone. So here's kind of an example of us thinking of God as just this, this grumpy old debt collector who's just trying to get his due. Um, Maybe we just need to buy him off by building up the correct equity. And we have this idea that God isn't happy with us. It's only by our moral perfection, by our saying no to the the wrong things and yes to the right things that he'll be pleased with us or at least leave us alone. And this view of God leads us to this endless cycle of trying, failing, feeling shame and trying again, failing again. And we are left with a God who doesn't actually love us in our in our mind. 
it drives us away from God in the end, even though it might look like we're doing all the right things, which is kind of where what I experienced in, in high school. Other times we think of God as just a kind old grandpa in the sky who exists to make us happy. This is part of a comic that I found. Um, it's cute, you know, it makes me chuckle. <laughs> I like the idea of a God who makes us, is pleased with us all the time, sends us off to play on earth, and then waits for us to come back and tell us, tell him everything that we did. Um, this idea of God is actually summed up by what this guy George Barna calls moral therapeutic deism. And according to his studies, a large number of Americans today who say they are Christians actually believe this. Barna says, to increasing millions of Americans, God, if we even believe in a supernatural deity, exists for the pleasure of mankind. He resides in the heavenly realm solely for our utility and benefit. Most Americans believe that religion is very important in their lives, but this same group of people, including many professing Christians, also believe that people are inherently good and that our primary purpose is to enjoy life as much as possible. And this leads to a selfish life with even God revolving around me and my happiness. And in the end, what we're left with is a God that doesn't care about holiness and can't actually do anything. Both of these prevalent views of God have a shred of truth, but each one is only really a picture, a piece of the puzzle. It's incomplete because it either paints God as um, loving but not powerful and holy or powerful and holy and not loving. And the God of the Bible, Jesus, shows us a better way. God, as we talked about last week when we talked about Job, is both perfectly holy and just and perfectly loving. He just rips open all the boxes that we're trying to put him in. We see all over scripture that when people come within any proximity to God, they are immediately overcome with the sense of their own sinfulness in comparison to his glory and perfection. The prophet Isaiah had this experience when he had a vision of God upon his throne. Around him were these angelic beings called seraphim, and they were singing this. They were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in response to this vision, Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is so overcome by this display that he is forced to examine his own heart and to see that his account of righteousness, uh, of goodness, is nothing compared to the glory and the holiness of God. God is concerned about our holiness because he is holy. He's perfect. And he made us to be holy and set apart, to love him first and to love others well, to live in his way. This means that he cares about our sin, right? He can't simply ignore that constantly accumulating debt or he wouldn't be a just God. But scripture also forces us to see that the beautiful love of God, it doesn't allow us to say that God is only holy, that he is only some kind of debt collector, right? That takes what is owed in good deeds and lets us into heaven. Um, God is also loving. In fact, John writes in his first letter, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And later in Isaiah, it talks about God as a tender shepherd who leads his people like helpless lambs. There's so many examples that I could have pulled for this one, for both of them. Um, so we're left with this question of how, how can this be? How can God be both holy and just and compassionate and loving? And how can I, you, with our ever-accumulating debt that I think is righteousness, but know in my heart is actually idolatry, ever be made right with God? So we've seen that we need to look inward, we need to look outward, and now Jesus' question invites us to receive impossible grace. Jesus' question to the man and to us invites us to be honest about our own sin and to be honest about the moral perfection of Jesus. The man here, he wasn't at a place of belief, right? He walked away. He left the offer. He was still holding up the illusion that his spiritual bank account was full enough and that what Jesus was asking was too much. But when Jesus asks us, why do you call me good? We can actually answer truthfully and straight because you are good and I'm not. And this is where Jesus' disciples were at the end of this passage in verse 26. Through observing this interaction that Jesus has with this young man, they begin to ask questions too. And Jesus teaches them, which he often does after doing something. He talks to his disciples about it and he teaches them. And he, he's telling them that it's incredibly difficult for someone who is entangled in their own idolatry to enter heaven. And this is concerning to them because they know, like I know, that we all have some sort of idolatry in our hearts. Jesus' analogy of a camel going through the eye of a needle is a hyperbole to show that our own righteousness and our own merit, life with God is impossible. And this leads us to a place of realization that the true way into relationship with God, into salvation, is completely and utterly achievable on our own. We need to be questioning along with a, the astonished Peter, right? Like, who can be saved? We often share the man's assumption in coming to Jesus that we need to be perfect in order to be loved. But look at verse 21. Right after declaring that he believes himself blameless and right before showing that he's definitely not uh, and his heart actually worships his wealth, uh, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved him before he could prove that he was as holy as he claimed. Friends, unfortunately for Joel Osteen and all of us operating under this spiritual bank account worldview, we know that God does care about holiness. He cares that we are sinners, that we choose our own way rather than his, that we spurn his love, that we can't do a single good deed within, with a completely pure motivation. But he also has this big, amazing, never giving up love for us, despite our sin, in the midst of our sin. So this spiritual bank account picture, when shown through the lens of God's standard for perfection, leads us to a painful realization. <laughs> All we have is iniquity. We're in the red. But instead of counting up our good deeds and measuring them against our bad, 
Or instead of just giving us a passing grade, through Jesus, God has forgiven our iniquity account and taken our debt onto himself, right? And not only that, but he has emptied his righteousness account and poured it into your own. This is what salvation through Jesus Christ really means. Jesus, being both God and man, kept God's law perfectly. His account of equity is full, right? Um, and he always loved God perfectly, and he always loved others perfectly. He's the only one who can ever say, all of these commandments I have kept since my youth. And his perfect record is applied to us when we come to him in faith. So like I discovered in high school, it is possible for your fear of hell, your guilt, your shame to be taken away. By God's grace, God does provide assurance that when you place your faith in him alone, when you let go of trying to earn your way to God's love, he provides for you. You can rest. You can receive the gift offered. Now, a practical application of all of this is to make a practice of a certain type of prayer called confession and repentance. Confession isn't about bargaining something from God or about earning his love back or even about showing him your sincerity and devotion. Confession is about being honest with yourself and with God about your need for him. It's, it's a way of saying to him, you are good and I'm not, right? Answering that question. And when we know that we are loved already, when we are accepted already and paid for, Already being honest about our idolatry and attempts to earn God's love is no longer scary. It's, it's actually freeing. And through that kind of honest, oh, broken-hearted prayer, um, God actually changes us. He reminds us of who we are. He reminds us of who he is. And he sh- reminds us of the way that he's made for us to be with him. So, friends, look upon the beauty of the goodness of Jesus applied to your account and live. Take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. (laughs) For those of you who have not yet turned to Christ for the first time, um, maybe you're not convinced that you need to. Um, You've never, you know, in your heart of hearts been honest with yourself and God in this way. This is an invitation to go to God with your questions, with your uncertainty, even with your doubt. And of course, It's always an invitation to come to Jesus with your need, the only one who is good enough and loving enough to provide for your soul. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you so much for being perfect, perfectly good, and perfectly loving. Thank you that you use those attributes for us, not against us. I pray that you would call us to yourself, whether this is the first time we've heard this or the thousandth time we've heard this, we know that we need it. And I pray that you would um, go with us as as we think more about this. In Jesus' name, amen.